team and you guys, so like it's a privilege to be here. Um, how's everybody doing this morning? Oh, good. Wow, we even got claps. That's a great morning. Woo, I want to hang out with you. Um, all right, physical pain. I get to tackle that today in a mere 30, I'm sorry, 35, maybe even longer is what I found out in the first service. Um, hang on. Uh, physical pain. It's, a, it's a, just a tiny little topic. Um, something I know a little bit about, unfortunately. Um, let me just say, I have a rule. This is going to be kind of quirky. Uh, some of you are going to really appreciate my rule. <laughs> my rule is you don't clean where you can't see. So like underneath the bed. I don't know what you guys are doing, cleaning underneath the bed. You can't see. Don't look, right? On top of the, you know, your refrigerator, like why are we cleaning that? Unless you're really tall and then you can see it, okay, then you have to clean it. So I've had this rule my whole life. I, I forgot, I also have another rule, and that is I don't move furniture once it's set in place. <laughs> I am not like some of you in this room that you know, think your house is a canvas that constantly is in process of artwork. Like I just put it there and it stays there forever, done. So I had a bedroom set that had been in stationary position for seven years, and I had not cleaned underneath the bed because I can't see it. Until someone asked me if they could borrow my seminary books, which I had packed away underneath my bed. <laughs> seven years in, I looked. I have a lot of hair. Do you know how much accumulates in seven years? It was gross. And you know, you, you dust skin off your, your body when you lay on your bed. I know it's kind of gross. You should actually vacuum your mattress. And because it seeps down and it's it was just disgusting. And now that I'd seen it, I had to vacuum it, which means I needed to move my furniture to be able to vacuum it. And I couldn't wait for my husband to get home to move the huge armoire because we women don't do that. We have things to get done. We cannot wait for you men to arrive. And so I got myself up against the wall and I got my legs up and I pushed my armoire over and bam, my back kind of snapped. And I was in my 30s and I thought, no big deal. I'm sure I pulled a muscle. I was in really good shape at that time. I was a runner, all that kind of stuff. You know, I've just pulled a muscle. Well, the next day happened to be the day that Steve and I and our three little kids at the time, they're not little anymore. They're 33, 31, and almost 30. She's 29. Um, but when they were little, we used to pack our Suburban and drive from Texas to upstate New York in the summer. Do you know why we left Texas in the summer? Yes, okay, great. So, you know, my whole extended family lives in upstate New York. It's beautiful in the summer. So we packed our Suburban, away we went. It's 26 hour drive. Now I was in a little bit of pain. I get to my mom's, a couple days in, I decide, well, I need to go for a run. I'm about a mile out, bam, I go down. Can't get up, call my mom, she comes and gets me. And for the rest of the summer, I spent on my mom's couch, icing, heating my back, you know, taking painkillers and ibuprofen and all of that stuff. Again, assuming I had pulled a muscle. Uh, you might ask, why didn't you go to a doctor after a while? Well, because I was 30 and stupid. I would go now. I'm much older and wiser at this point, but I didn't go, you know? And so when it was time to go back to Texas, I had to like call people and say, hey, do you got any painkillers? What do you got to knock me out? Because I knew I needed to be knocked out to drive back home. Next day, I go to see a doctor. I had broken my back in two places. That's why it hurts so bad, you know? Um, turns out that hurts. Um, that was the beginning in my mid-30s to a nine-year trajectory of dealing with chronic pain. 
I spent nine years icing, carrying around a heating pad. I would show up at the pastoral staff meetings, and I always had to be near a plug. I mean, I would plug in my heating pad, and I would wiggle a lot when I moved, you know? And like, and of course, you've been taught if someone wiggles while you're talking, it means they're bored with you. Well, I had to always say to people, I'm not bored with you. I just can't, my back hurts. I can't sit still, you know? I spent a lot of time at doctors, acupuncturers. I was restricting movements, visiting doctors. So I think I have something to bring to the table when we're talking about uh, physical pain, things that keep us up at night, you know. Uh, in this room, there's a whole lot of physical pain represented. Emotional pain also causes physical pain, so we're talking about pain in general. I can't possibly identify with every single one of your situations. There's just not enough time, not enough. It's, it's a huge thing that we have in our lives. But what I do know is that pain is a human experience. It's a universal experience. We all will encounter it. And I want to share today not all that there is to know about God's truth when it comes to dealing with physical pain. I can't possibly cover that. I want to just share what God has shown me in how to process my pain so it didn't ruin me. And my hope for you is in something that I say will somehow breathe out onto you by the power of the Holy Spirit some sense of comfort and hope in your physical pain. I have to be honest, in the first years when that occurred, um, I was at war with my body. Do you know what I mean? When you're in physical pain, one of your first things you do is you get mad at your body. You're frustrated, you're angry, you can't understand why she won't behave the way you want her to behave. And so there's this war that's going on. But that situation in my life and some others, which you will hear about in a minute, led me on to a trajectory of trying to research why did God give us bodies? Why do we have a body? What difference does being embodied make? And it's from that trajectory of research that I walked away from uh, this one fundamental truth that has helped me, like, it's, it's like a foundational truth I've had to stand on while my body has gone through chronic pain. I had to learn to lean into, and by the way, you have to lean into it. I had to live out, I had to practice the fact that my body is beautifully good even when I experience physical pain. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from today, because see, as a person who trains people how to preach, there's a main idea, one sentence that I want you to leave with that will hook you, like your elevator speech. It's the thing you need to remember among all things, and that is... Your body is beautifully good. I know I can. <laughs> when I say this to people, they're like, yeah, oh, she doesn't know. <laughs> it's uh, a little hard for us to swallow, let alone say about ourselves, isn't it? Because we have been taught anything but our bodies being beautifully and good, right? If you're a female, if you have a female body, you've learned your, your body is deficient. It needs fixing. By the way, you have learned that by the time you were a tween. By the time you were a tween, you were taught that your body needs alteration. We spend the rest of our lives doing it. If you're a woman in a female body and you've been in the church, you've been raised to think that your body is dangerous. 
to men and boys. If you are a black body or a brown body or a fat body or an aging body like mine, or if you are a disabled body, then you have learned that some bodies are better than other bodies, haven't you? If you live in a body that experienced abuse like I have, you've learned that your body's not safe. And if you walk around in physical pain, you've learned your body is a burden and you're at war with her. We've learned a whole lot of things about our bodies, except what God says. And God says our bodies are beautifully good. And he said that from the very beginning of Scripture, and he takes it all the way to Revelation, when we have embodied souls, right? We are embodied in the new heavens, new earth. All the way through Scripture, he talks to us about our beautiful bodies, and I know you've probably never, ever, ever seen it. So I'm going to hit two passages. I could take you all the way through. That would drive you crazy because that would bore you. But I'll just hit two, okay? Are you happy about that? Okay, you don't want me to do 12. If you do, I'll, I'll do 12. You just have to tell me. No, okay, two. Um, the first is Genesis. I think we center our, our value, our understanding, our worth in Genesis. It's the creation story. It's our story. And if you read Genesis chapter 1, which I'm sure many of you have heard it, it's like we are hearing God talk in a cadence, right? He said, in the beginning there was. Let there be, right? God says, let there be light. And there was, and it was good. Let there be. And it was, and it was good. Like we hear this over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 1. We get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to be specific, and it's the first time we hear it is not good. It is good, it is good, it's good, it's good, it's not good. What's not good? It's not good that man be alone. By the, word that, by the way, that word man actually is human. So like let's be, I mean it's specifically, you know, about all of us. It is not good for man to be alone. Now I need to just pause and say this has nothing to do with your pain, but I want to be clear. The problem of aloneness is not answered by leadership, which some of us have been taught. Oh, he's alone. He needs to be a leader over someone else. Like that's the answer to aloneness. No. The answer to aloneness is knownness. And that's what the creation story is telling us a lot about, about our relationship with God and being known by him and being in knownness with each other, right? It is not good for man to be alone. He makes a woman, suitable helper, easier canego is the Hebrew. It means corresponding partner face to face. And I love what one person says, and I'd love to give that person credit, but I can't remember anymore. Who said what? You know, I'm just telling you I didn't say it, but it's profound. Her presence is an invitation for him to come out of himself and into otherness. To turn away from his aloneness and independence, hold that, because we're going to talk about independence and how it plays into pain. Independence toward face-to-face -to -face relationships and the mystery of interdependence. Right in the garden, we see about independence, mm, not good, interdependence, mm, that's what we were made for. And that has something to do with how we handle our physical pain. So hold on, we're going to get there. So he brings woman, and man says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And I want you to notice, she doesn't say anything to him. 
Her body speaks. It's not like she says to him, by the way, by this point, he's already named all the animals, right? I'll make woman. Then he doesn't make woman, by the way, which is very interesting. He, makes, he has him name all the animals. Then he brings her woman, right? And, and she just stands there, and he goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, and, and what he's doing is he's identifying, ooh, you are like me. Now, she didn't say that. She didn't say, hey, dude, in case you can't figure it out, I'm more like you than any other creature that God made, Right? <laughs> Her body informs him. And here's what I want you to know. Our bodies are the agency from which we become known. And I know you've been taught about, it's about being fat or skinny or tall or whatever. No, no, no. Such a bigger story. It's about becoming known. Our bodies enable us to do that. Our bodies, it says in Genesis, enable us to carry out God's work. Right? We're given a cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. We're to rule, subdue, and fill the earth. That means create all kinds of civilizations, which is like takes up all kinds of jobs and work. And we do that in a body. And so these are some things that tell us what our body is about. That's Genesis. I'm going to take us to Paul. I really would rather stick with Jesus. I really like Jesus. <laughs> it's not that I don't like Paul. I just think Paul should be interpreted through Jesus. But I'm going to go to Paul. Because Paul talks about the body all the time, and I bet you've never noticed. And now I'm going to challenge you. The next time you ever read any of the epistles or Romans, I want you to like circle every time Paul talks about the body. Because he actually talks about the body all the time. And there's a reason for that. And we'll get to it in just a second. But the point is, he understood, like he used the body as a metaphor of the church, right? But I want to, like, like I could... Like, go into so many of that. Okay, Jackie, stay focused, stay focused. We're just going to stick with one. 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I suspect if you've been raised in the church, you've heard that. Always in the context of sexual immorality, correct? Anybody with me? I feel, you know, like, by the way, it was only the women's heads that shook on that one. Yep, that's what they taught me. I don't know what they were telling the guys, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know? Yeah, oh, and, 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 and if you look at the, the text, the context, that is the context. But there's more there than just talking about sexual sin. Paul actually calls us the temple. And like, this should take us back to the temple in the Old Testament, New Testament. He's actually talking about a physical building, right? And there's a whole lot about that temple that Paul's trying to say about our physical bodies. Like, it's literally the place God dwells. And we should pause on that one just for a moment. Like the God who threw the stars into the sky... Who, who literally gave a, a woman's womb the ability to, to give birth to the Messiah, the virgin, the, the very one who raised Jesus from the dead, that powerful, almighty God in you. Probably screaming to get out of you, to be totally honest, <laughs> but in you nonetheless. That right there gives your body a whole lot of worth. Paul says that the temple, if you read, not Paul, but if you read about the temple in the Old Testament, New Testament, the temple was God's idea. He initiated how it would be designed. So when Paul says, your body is the temple, here's what I want you to know. Your individual body was God's idea, his initiative. He decided your height, your weight, your personality, your hair, you name it. He chose it 
It was his idea, which means we should be a little careful walking around saying, I really like my body, because it was God's idea. The, The temple was a physical testament to God's character. Like if you went in through the temple and if you've ever studied what the temple's plate, the things around the temple, what they meant, it all was to testify to God's character. People in the scriptures understood this. By the way, when Paul says, you're the temple, he's saying your body, your bodily presence says something about God's character in a way that no other body can. That ought to say something to us. The temple displayed God's wealth and beauty like it was a project that required expensive material designed to create a great masterpiece. Have you ever heard Paul say something like that? Ephesians 2.10, right? He says you are a masterpiece. That's a a one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again image bearer in your body. I'm taking a lot of time to lay the foundation about what your body is about before I can talk about how do we deal with pain because that's the foundation in which we got to stand on. Why do we have a body? What is it all about? And I'm afraid that we're a little bit like the Gnostics in Paul's day. I'm afraid that we tend to spiritualize our lives and ignore the fact that God chose to put us in a body See, the Gnostics in Paul's day, they, they believed that like the material world was bad. So, i.e., my body, bad. By the way, we've heard some of those messages, haven't we? And, and, the, and the spiritual world is really the good world, the world that matters, i.e., the soul. Now, we may not run around saying that we're Gnostics, but you can hear that in some of the things we say. Like when we say, hey, when you're in pain, it's just mind over matter. I know you've never said that to your children. By the way, your mind is matter. Like if I cut my body open and I could show you, well, I probably would be dead, but you could see my brain. It's matter in there. It's not some spiritual thing over here. The soul is embodied inside me. It is not some separate thing. It will be at some point for a moment, but right now it's interconnected oneness. Jesus had a lot to say about being one. Paul talked about being one, right? We say things that actually represent that we actually live like Gnostics about our bodies more than we realize. And this happened to me. I'm, I'm going to have them throw up. A, oh, that's me. I totally. That's what I did for six months out of the year. Cumulative. I would sit on a couch and do my work. So you can see my Bible in the very corner. I'm in Africa here, about ready to teach. That's, I don't own that ugly couch. I just want to clarify. <laughs> Mine is not quite... Right. We're going to my daughter. Where's my daughter? I know. Isn't she cute? She's way beautiful now. She's 30, almost. She's so cute. But that was her in kindergarten. And um, I was a little Gnostic at that time. I didn't know it. I was a brand new mom and actually a brand new Christian. I didn't know how to do either. And so one day, uh, it was time to walk my daughter to kindergarten. We lived around the corner, so we're walking, and she's got this cute little dress. And you know how little girls, when they walk their little dress, if it's just right fabric, it sways. It's so cute, isn't it? And she said to me, Mommy, I am so beautiful. 
And I, you know, was new at this Christian thing, and I had been listening to what you Christians say. And I had learned a truth, and that was, it's not what's on the outside that matters, it's what's on the inside. Oh, you've heard this one, you Gnostics, you. And that's what I said to my daughter. And literally, the Holy Spirit thunked me like, has the Holy Spirit ever done to that to you? Like something's happened right now, probably the Holy Spirit's thunking you, having a conversation with you that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. Has he ever done that to you? Right? And the Spirit said to me, if that's true, then why is it that you turn around when you buy a new pair of jeans to see how they look on your butt? He said butt to me, but I'm from New York, and so the Spirit speaks to me like a New Yorker. Probably not to you, he might not have used that word. But for me, it was but. And that literally was the moment that sent me on a trajectory of studying body theology. Why do we have a body? What's the body all about? See, we tend to think Gnostic, be like a, a, a Gnostic, right? And Paul, I mean, I mean, he's going up against the Gnostics. Why? Because the gospel is at play here. Right? If the body is bad and the soul is good, what are you going to do with a Savior who came in a body and died on a cross in a body and resurrected in a body? That's right. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus, when we see him in the new heavens and new earth, is going to have a body. I won't. You can take me to the wall. I might be wrong on that one. No, you know, no, I'm not going to die on that hill. But we, it says in Scripture, Paul tells us, we are going to be physically resurrected in a body. And so Paul was very concerned about keeping the mind, body, and soul together as one. He understood, right, that the body is beautifully good. He understood that everything that happens to us happens in our bodies. You are not separate. You are your body. I like how Hillary McBride, she holds a PhD in counseling psychology and the author of a lot of talk about embodiment and a book called The Wisdom of Your Body. She says this, the body is where life happens, both the beautiful and the painful, our individuality our, and our relationships, and the now and the past, but many of us have forgotten ourselves as bodies. She goes on to say, most of us forget about our bodies until pain, aging, illness, trauma, incarceration, or impending death brings, us, brings it to the fore. And isn't that true with you? exactly right. The interesting thing is, McBride goes on to tell us that actually God designed uh, pain in the body, not to bring us pain, hear me, I don't think he's that kind of God, but he designed the body to actually alert us through pain when something is wrong within us. It's actually a beautiful thing, not pain, but the, the way it's been made, right? This is what she says. Pain itself does not occur at the site of the injury in the tissues. I didn't know that. If you're a doctor, maybe you knew that. I did not. What you experience as pain is the end result of a set of messages sent via nerve endings through your body to your spinal cord and up to your brain stem to a, very, to a series of structures in the middle of your brain. 
The messages say that there is an injury or something you need to pay attention to. Have you ever considered that your physical pain is like a way that your body was designed to go, alert, alert, something's wrong. Pain also is telling us that the body has activated the appropriate systems to respond and to fight for us. I know it doesn't always feel like she's fighting for us, but actually that's what pain medically is. It's like the body saying, alert, alert, all systems on alert. Let's do what we can do to fight for healing. I needed to hear that alert and I didn't pay attention to it very well. I bet none of you have blown right past the alert that your body's saying, but I did a lot. 2010, I almost stroked out twice. Twice I had to be rushed to the emergency room, shot with something that brought my high blood pressure down to a point where I could actually stay alive, twice. I went to my back doctor and he knew what had happened and he looked at me and very bluntly said, Jackie, I don't know what you're doing, but if you don't stop it, you're gonna die. Dead stop. If you don't stop it, you're gonna die. At that time, I uh, not only had chronic pain from the broken bones, now there was arthritis where those bones had been broken. I also have three degenerative discs, one of which is just flat bone on bone. At that time, I also decided to get my doctorate while I was working on staff full-time at a megachurch. I oversaw a 1,000 women as the teaching pastor to women. I was the first woman on the preaching team, so I also like, had another job being the preacher, one of the preachers on the preaching team. On the weekends when I wasn't preaching, I would travel and teach women's conferences all over the place. And I wrote Bible studies. I taught women how to write Bible studies. I had people from all over the country flying in to ask, how are we doing what we're doing? At the same time, my dad went nuts. He was in his 60s. My dad never drank a beer, never did a thing of drugs. And at 60, he started doing crack cocaine and he pulled a gun on my mom and he threatened to kill my sister at her wedding. My parents had been married 40 years. They owned three companies together. We had to figure out how to get my parents divorced, how to get my dad off all the boards, how to get the three businesses sold, and my parents went bankrupt. At the same time, my husband discovered he had a tumor, a brain tumor. Turns out it was benign, yay, but boy, did that whack out his body, and boy, did that take a toll on our marriage. At the same time, I had a third, ch second child named Hampton, and he is, I, I don't always know how to, how to preface him, um, he's a dentist and menace on caffeine, and that's a very nice way of saying he's a very naughty child, since he was born. It wasn't like teenagehood. And he got kicked out of every single school he ever went to. He went to four different colleges, got kicked out of every single one, graduated on time. He sold drugs out of our house. He was violent. We kicked him out of our home. He lived on the street for a while, and then we sent him to military school. Hardest thing I've ever done. In the middle of all that, I was also just trying to stay married and actually manage a home. And those of you who manage a home, you know what I mean by that, like getting food in the refrigerator, you know, vacuuming, not where you do not see. <laughs> You know how you have to go get the poster boards for the kids' projects and 
Like I was just trying to hold things up. Anyone else in here living that kind of lifestyle? Hmm. How's your body doing? See, I was not paying attention to what my body was saying. And my body was going, overdrive, overdrive, right? I kept pushing myself beyond my maximum capacity. And guess what? Our world, even the Christian world, rewards us for doing so. You know that, don't you? Mm-hmm. Rebecca Tazin, and I'm sure I have slaughtered her last name. Someday I'm going to call her and say, how do you pronounce your last name? Um, she has her PhD in creative nonfiction and disability studies, and in her memoir, Sitting Pretty, it's about being disabled, she says this, those who don't work as many hours, who don't produce as much, whatever that means, whose wages are lower or gasp, rely on others to survive, we categorize as a drain or a burden. This ableist model tells us that the human body is a work machine whose value is determined by its production. Like a toaster that can toast six slices of bread instead of just the usual two. The more you do, the more hours of overwork, overtime you work, the less sleep you get, the more duties you fulfill, the faster you get the work done, the less help you require, the more you're worth. Anybody agree with that? Mm-hmm. See, what I learned uh, from my physical pain was um, I'm not God. Turns out I'm not God. <laughs> Don't laugh, neither are you. <laughs> Turns out I have limitations. So do you. I would even argue that God made us with limitations on purpose. Right? We have limitations. Uh, my pain taught me that I ha there's mortality here in my life. That I'm human. And actually it helped me redefine who defines my worth. See, when you're in pain, right, you, you cry out and a lot of times you're forced back to Jesus to say, what do you have to say? What am I worth if I can't produce? What if I'm depressed and laying on the couch and can't move? You still love me? Am I still worthy? And God says, yeah. Come back to me. Let me define your worth. Me and me alone. McBride goes on to say there's something comforting, sometimes healing, and sometimes a reminder that you do not have to keep trying to earn love. You can access it. If the body is sacred, which it is, without condition, which it is, then your body and the body of your neighbor deserves to be treated as sacred. And when you know this deep in your bones, you're also more likely to challenge the social systems, idea, behavior, or systems that try to tell you otherwise. See, my pain like forced me to limit my productivity and it helped me rewire how I defined my worth. And the truth is that it has changed everything about how I do ministry and actually, quite frankly, how I live out my life. That's what pain can do. See, I am no, will, no longer willing to run like I'm a machine. I'm not a machine, and nor are you. 
I was with a friend recently, a 60-year-old man who's moving through different jobs, and of course it's a very scary thing to be transitioning jobs in your 60s, and he kept talking about being pr productive and efficient, and I finally looked at him and said, John, do you know you keep talking about yourself like you're a machine? Watch your words. Efficient? Productive? Is that what Jesus says about you? See, pain helped me learn to listen to my body, to not push through my capacity. And by the way, at times we have to push through the capacity, right? At times we don't have a choice. We have to maximize ourselves, but it's not sustainable. Pain taught me to be humble, to accept that I have limitations. It helped me to prioritize my life. Like, what's important? Who gets my energy? Because you don't have as much energy when you're dealing with chronic pain, do you? Who gets my energy? Who gets my time? I'm 58. I have limited breaths left. I always had, but now that I'm older, I realize it. See, aging makes you start asking. I've got limited amount of breaths left to give, and I'm deciding who gets them and who doesn't. See, pain, if we will let it, can help us prioritize, it can help us adapt, adjust, and let go. And now I work with younger women who minister, and I know the stress that pastors take on when they minister. Alas, why I'm very committed to like lead bold. I get their vision. And women will call me and they will start to share with me what's going on in their ministry and the obstacles they're having to overcome, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I will always, almost immediately ask, how's your body? And of course, it always throws them a little bit like, what's that have to do with ministry? And why are you, how's your body? What's she saying to you? It's a question I really wish somebody had asked me. And so I would be remiss to leave here this morning without asking you. How's your body? What's your body telling you? Are you listening? I have several tattoos. Uh, I know, thank you. I live in Austin. You can't live in Austin without several tattoos. But I'd gone years without getting my third one. I'd been waiting and waiting, waiting to decide if I was gonna have another one, what would it be? But I knew when I got another tattoo, if I got another tattoo, it was gonna be at Razook's. Razook's Tattoo Parlor is in the old city of Israel. Uh, by the way, if you wanna get a tattoo, insist that you go to Israel to get it because this is the longest running tattoo parlor in history, 700 years. See, I'm, I'm like helping you arm you here. Honey, I've got to go to Israel. The preacher said that's where you get the tattoo. 700 years old. It's the oldest. It's in the world. You know, what do they call that? The Guinness World Records. 27 generations have carried this parlor through. It started in Egypt. Now it's in the old city of Israel, of Jerusalem. And, and I always chuckle. I think 27 generations. When the guy was telling me, I'm thinking, well, what, what happens if one of the kids finally grows up and says, I don't think I want to carry that tradition on. You know, like, no way. It's like the mafia. You're dead. You're dead to me. You know? So I went, and I knew I was going to get a tattoo. I called, made an appointment. My husband did not. He was so excited about the tattoo. He got one spontaneously. I thought mine through. Just saying. A lot, lot more logical. The tattoo I got was with. You can't see it, but it's W-I-T-H. With. 
And the reason I got it, and hold on, this has to do with physical pain. See, you can go to Israel, get a tattoo, and like talk about physical pain. Is because I've been, as a pastor of 30 years, on a journey of letting go of some of the beliefs I have inherited in the conservative evangelical tradition. I have been remodeling my theological palace that I built for Jesus, as Brian Zahand would say. But in all of that remodeling, one thing has remained the same. One truth has not wavered at all, and that is God is with me. God is with. Now, I don't always feel like God's with me. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I know for a fact, not only because I've experienced it, but it says it all the way through scripture. I won't take the time to go through them all. I'll just land you on Isaiah 43 too, because that's the one that made me decide with. It says, when you go through the deep water, I will be with you. And I love my Jesus because he's real. He tells us, guess what? Deep water, you're in it. Trouble, gonna happen. Physical pain, mm-hmm. At least he's honest. I can deal with a savior like that. At least I know what I'm in for. You know what I mean? One night, I was crying out to the Lord with all that was going on in my life, and he popped up in my brain, Isaiah 43.2. You can call it a movie. I might have called it a vision, but if vision freaks you out, you can call it movie a movie scene, that we can do whatever we need here to be safe. But I was in this vision, and here I was in the middle of a raging river. My life sounded like a raging river, didn't it? Yeah. I'm in the middle of a raging river, and the water is right here, like half covering my nostrils, about to die. And I cannot explain it. I wish I could. It even sounds like nuts when I say it, but Jesus showed up in the middle of that river. And somehow, I don't even know how, he got me to the other side on the bank. Now, I was like barely breathing, didn't have enough energy to walk up the bank yet, but I was alive. I experienced viscerally the presence of God, God with me. And I wish I could prove it to you. I probably don't need to. I suspect you've experienced the presence of God at some point in your life, too. God with us. That presence matters. Sometimes the most important things we know, we come to know through personal relational knowing. And what I know about God is he stoops and sits next to us. When the pain's too much, he says, I know. And he sits there for a long time. And if you don't believe me, read John chapter 4 this afternoon. It's where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And the text tells us he sat. He didn't stand there like, "Mm, I don't have time for this. You need to, let's get this conversation over. He sat down, stooped, hung out, waited. Like he had nothing else to do in the world. And that's what God does with us. He sits with us in the pain, holding us, oozing his extravagant love over us present in the pain that's what i know and at this stage of my faith journey i'm at a point where i'm 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 thinking that perhaps the most quintessential way that i can actually reflect who god is in this broken beautifully but beautifully broken world is by stooping 
sitting next to another. Being like God by being physically present. Remember what it said in the garden that's not good? Aloneness. It turns out when we physically show up, like God physically shows up, and whatever means that may be, we feel known, we feel seen. Our pain is carried. 2 Corinthians 1.14 says that those who've been comforted by God are to comfort others. That word is parkale he uses there. That's the word that we talk about about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and 16, right? We call him the parkale. The parkale means to come beside. And here in this text, we're called to be a parkale, to come beside, physically be present. We know for a fact that when kids are traumatized, like a school shooting, right, that they are likelier to move into substance abuse or PSD. PTSD, and Richard Rohr says this. He's a Franciscan theologian. He says, pain that is not transformed is transferred. When we leave people alone in their pain, their alienation becomes a precondition for radicalization, substance abuse, and PTSD. And what science is telling us, and we know this from the pandemic now, is that when you show up in your body, right, something changes. Something is carried. Weight is released. And what that tells me, and I've had to learn very humbly, is that I not only, in physical, when I'm in physical pain, I not only have to do self-care. We talk a lot about that in America. Yay, I'm all for self-care. But I would argue we also need collective care. And it's something we're not as good at. Collective care. Right? It is not good for man to be alone. I like how Valerie Carr says it. She says it's in her book, See No Stranger, one of my favorite books of all time, See No Stranger, which, by the way, I read a lot, so that's a huge statement. She calls it squad care. I love that statement. She said squad care is a way to be in relationship with people committed to caring for one another. Squad care reminds us that there is no shame in reaching for each other and insists the imperative rests not on the individual, independence, but on the community, interdependence. What did Genesis tell us? See, I think pain reminds us and begs us to reject the American idea of independence. It's not good for man to be alone. Pain drives us to ask for help, to let others carry us. Boy, that makes us feel so uncomfortable, doesn't it? And yet scripture says it's what we were made for. Galatians 6, 2 says we are to carry one another's burdens. We are a burden-carrying people. Something happens when we physically show up in the presence of others, particularly when they are in pain. Now, I'm not saying it heals their pain, takes their pain away. It does do something, though. I used to say, oh, you know, like physical healing, absolutely every time that was when I was young and stupid, like 30 and broke my back and didn't go to a doctor. I'm older now. And now I recognize that some things can't be fixed, but they can sure be carried. A few years back, my, um, I was on my way to teach at a Bible study, and my son Hampton, remember the one that got kicked out of every school? He called me. And I knew by his voice that something was wrong. You know how that happens, mamas? Immediately, right? And your mama, she can tell too. Something was wrong, very wrong. 
And he proceeded to tell me um, that one of his friends in grad school, my son at the time was getting an MBA and a master's at the same time, which will matter in just a minute. Um, and one of his friends, Kate, had been stabbed over a hundred times. A man who was high on drugs broke into her apartment and for no reason, a random act, just stabbed her. Stabbed a lot of her organs. She was holding on for dear life, rushed to the hospital. My son Hampton and his three roommates went to the hospital and they stayed for hours. But they couldn't see Kate because they weren't family. And so finally his roommate said, look, we've got to go back to school. Like we can't just keep missing everything. And so Hampton drove his roommates home so that they could go back to class. And that's on his way, he's on his way back to the hospital and that's when he called me. And he said, mom, I can't let Kate wake up alone in the room. See, Hampton knew he couldn't fix her lungs or couldn't fix her kidneys but he knew he couldn't let her wake up in that room alone. Because my son knew it is not good for man to be alone. And so he asked me this question. He said, should I lie? Which is very humorous <laughs> because my son got kicked out of every school. He lied about drugs. He, you know, like, oh my God, the kid grew up lying, right? And for the first time in his life, he's asking me, mom, should I lie? Like. And pastor mom said, absolutely. You are Cousin Hampton from California who just showed up. And that's exactly what he did. He went back to the hospital. I'm Hampton. I'm her cousin from California. In the room he went. He moved in with Kate for a month while he was going to school. I can't explain to you. I could explain to you, but it's not my story to tell of why Kate's family didn't show up. But no one in Kate's family came. There was no one. So my son moved in for a month. There's nothing romantic about suffering, but when others are present to suffering, that presence begins to tend to our wounds. Now, don't get me wrong. Hampton also went into action, right? Like he tried to fix things. He did a fundraiser for her hospital expenses because she had no help and a support system for how to navigate things for school. And he bought her boxing gloves. And he hung them up and he said, Kate, you're in a fight for your life and you're going to win. Hear me when I say this. God's presence is most experienced not in ideas and proclamation, but presence. I don't like pain. And you don't either. But I have learned through these decades that our bodies are beautifully good, even when we experience it. That pain drives me to, to the reality that I'm limited. It drives me to redefine my worth according to what God says, not what the world says. It opens spaces for God's presence in ways I've never experienced before. And it allows me in my body to enter into other people's pain. And if we're going to be able to process our pain so it doesn't ruin us, we need to stand on the truth. And the truth is, your body, your beautifully good body, that's what you have, a beautifully good body. 
Lord, help us to stand on that. To you be the glory, God. Amen. I'm going to ask Adrian to come. And I know in this conversation, like there's a lot ruminating in you. I know there's a lot of physical, emotional, all kinds of pain, relational pain in this room. You know, you can feel it. It's palatable. Um, So let's... Let's take this opportunity with her to walk through what, is it, what does it look like to talk to Jesus about something you've just said, something the Spirit just said, and even to pray for healing, to be as bold to say, Lord, take this away from me. So that's what we're going to enter into, and I'm going to step aside and let yes. Andrea move us there.